Consider statements like these. My friend isn't following Jesus anymore. My kids are wrestling with their faith. Or I don't know about church, it's not for me. I believe in God, but it's not all that much a part of my life. Or why does Christianity have to be so hard? Yeah, however you define God, I'm not sure Jesus is the only way to God. And I used to pray and read my Bible, but in a broad spectrum, these are statements of struggle with faith, and particularly the Christian faith. And my guess is that you have had a conversation with others, or you have had an internal conversation that touches on that very struggle, which is why I'm charged that we are, over the next number of weeks, are gonna go on a journey through the book of Hebrews. It is so relevant to our today. I mean, you wouldn't think so. This New Testament writing speaks about Old Testament sacrifices and an Old Testament priesthood, a mysterious character named Melchizedek. What could that possibly have to do with my life, right? But listen closely, and you'll see the author is addressing a struggle with faith that is common to all, and his words are timeless to steer us in the right direction, passionately. From his perspective, the stakes could not be higher. So join me in Hebrews chapter 1. And before we dive in, let's get our initial bearings by finding out about the author, the hearers, the place and time. At the top, the heading in your Bible probably reads, The Letter to the Hebrews. But it doesn't start like a letter at all. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, there's no greeting. It, it just jumps right in. Now, look back a previous page, and you, you see that the letter to Philemon begins, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. Flip back one more page, and, and you get to Titus, and it's Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But Hebrews bears no introduction. The writer never identifies himself, and the fact is no one can be sure who wrote this communication. It's fun to speculate. It's most likely not the Apostle Paul. Internal evidence would indicate whoever wrote this received the news about Jesus from others, whereas Paul, we know, was from the start apprehended by Jesus personally. Also, Hebrews exhibits the finest Greek in the New Testament. It's far different from all of Paul's other writings. So go ahead. Do your best to sleuth it out. Apollos, Barnabas, Priscilla. What we do know is the writer had a familiar relationship with those who are being addressed in the last chapter. He says he hopes to visit them with Timothy. He considers himself to be one of them. In chapter 2, verse 1, when he first gets around to addressing his hearers, he directly uses the, the all-inclusive word, we, as he does elsewhere. And the hearers are also addressed as spiritual family. We read in Hebrews chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we read that in Hebrews 10, it seems fairly conclusive that the people to whom Hebrews is addressed are Christians. Along with the author, they are people who confess Jesus and so are privileged to know and experience him through what Jesus has done. That they are believers will have significant ramifications throughout. Something else about these believers. Most were probably Jewish who find themselves emerged in Greek culture. Hebrews is rich in Jewish content of the Old Testament scriptures. The writer assumes his audience is very familiar with these words and is constantly referring to the Old Testament in its Greek translation, what we call the Septuagint. 
without giving references as he, he lays out truths and motivates. This should say something to us today. As I've had conversations with people and in discussing the way of Christ, making reference to scripture written before Jesus, I have literally had a person object to that by saying, that's Old Testament, as if God's word were no longer has anything to say to us there. If that were the case, with all its Old Testament references, you would have to discard Hebrews from the Bible. Rather, Hebrews shows us how the Old Testament is transformed into the new with the, the fulfillment of the Old Testament themes that take place in the person of Jesus going forward. In Hebrews, we come to understand the Old Testament is a Christ-centered book, and it expands our understanding, actually, of who he is. So the audience are believers, mainly Jewish, and as we piece together from what is written, here is the situation they find themselves in. They are under pressure, again. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. These believers had previously experienced a time of persecution, and they had done well. They had endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And because of their faith, they had been subjects of public shame. Some had been imprisoned. Some had lost their property. Somehow we'd like to think if we, if we just present Christianity right today, it will find favor in our community. People will like us. But right from the start, it has never been that way. It has been a mixed bag. And Christianity is often misunderstood and misaligned by those who oppose it. Jesus told us it would be that way. It's true today. It was true then. They were persecuted, and now persecution is looming again. Almost everything in Hebrews is, is disagreed upon, but with all that we know historically here, this is the most likely scenario. In AD 47-52, under his rule, the Roman Emperor Claudius was intent on restoring the Roman way and reducing the influence of what he saw as foreign cults among his territory. One of the things he did somewhere around AD 49 was expel Jews, and particularly Jewish Christians, from Rome. The Roman historian Suetonius tells us this was largely because of a conflict, an internal conflict they were having over the rise of Christianity within their ranks. Acts 18 makes this comment. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Discussing this persecution, theologian William Lane says, insult, public abuse, and especially the loss of property were normal under the conditions of an edict of expulsion. Yet the Christians had endured. They had held to their faith cheerfully. They continued on as followers of Jesus. But as another wave of difficulty washes in and looms on the horizon, the writer senses they are in danger. This potentially puts us into the region of Rome and the times of the reign of Nero, who ruled from AD 54 to 68. And increasingly, he became more hostile to Christians. As we will find out, in the interlude between persecution, some have become apathetic towards their faith. They have not become growing followers of Jesus, as we like to talk about here. And as they look ahead to the potential of another wave of hardship, 
the shame directed towards Christians, the, the loss of status in society, some are tempted to abandon their faith altogether. See, a Jew might be able to go back to Judaism and then be under the Roman protection to exercise their historic faith. Increasingly, though, Christianity came to be seen not as a sect within Judaism as it was originally viewed, but as a distinctive religion of its own, meaning it had no protective rights under Roman rule. And it was oh so tempting to go back. All you had to do was reject Jesus and be safe. Discouragement, apathy, disregard, going back, abandonment, deconstruction. This is not so different than common experience today. Like many of you, I have family, I have friends who once professed Jesus, but no longer do. The pull towards apathy, to, to grow distant in our faith, to, to stall in our growth, the ease with which that, that which once was alive in us becomes more subdued and then dormant and then non-existent. This is not a new thing. The scope and reasons can be varied, but the temptations have, they've got a similar ring throughout the ages, and the writer here so desperately wants us to get back on track and, and or stay on track, and so he brings us to what is still the way today. Go back to Jesus. Look again at God's Son. See him for who he really is, and look at what he has done. In Hebrews, we are not given a bunch of platitudes. We are given Christ, a bigger vision of who he is and the salvation that he brings. How great do you see him today? Hebrews 1 verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We are reminded that the Christian faith has a long history. This is not a fad. Today we see platforms and people that come and disappear like vapor. But God has been revealing himself to us, speaking through Old Testament prophets for centuries. The phrase that many times can, can also be translated in many portions, meaning a piece here and a piece there. All of that was true. Each prophet gave us a part of the revelation of God. But in Jesus, we are privileged to be in the era of the last days where we have God speaking fully and completely in Christ. And all these pieces come together in him, the Son. Hey, look, if there's a more important relationship than a relationship with God, I don't know one. And thankfully, God communicates. This book exists because of that. He wants us to know him and he has spoken to us by his son. To give us a glimpse of the magnitude of that, the author begins to tell us a few things about who the son is. In verse two, he's the heir of all things. There is nothing that is not rightfully his. He's the creator of all things. In these two statements, the beginning, the present, and the future are all wrapped up into him. Verse three, he is the radiance of God's glory. He is the awesomeness of God, not a reflection, but the light of the awesomeness of God himself. Try looking at the sun without glasses. You can't, sunglasses, you can't, you shouldn't. It will wreck your eyes. And, and yet that's but one of the millions of heavenly bodies that Jesus has created and his glory far exceeds all of that. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. When you see Jesus, you see God. As Jesus said to his disciples, when you have seen me, You've seen the Father. 
The sun sustains our world. He upholds the universe by his speech. When you're thinking much of yourself, think about the power in a word that causes the earth to keep its rotation, the sun to hold its juxtaposition to the planets, the word that moves time and space forward in their directed intention. Christ's communication is not to be taken for entertainment, for, for surface knowledge. It is not a communication for you and I to sit in judgment upon. It is a powerful word, and the universe itself is dependent upon it. And if he can keep the universe together by the word of his power, surely he can keep you too. And then almost like mentioning it as an aside, he made purification for sins. All the messes you've made and I've made, the Son has actually made a way for those to be dealt with. We can approach God without guilt. This is an inconceivable accomplishment, but it's done once and for all. That's why it's said of the Son, he is in the place of supremacy, at the right hand of the God, of God, the majesty, where Jesus sat down. As he said on the cross, it is finished. What is written here in these first three verses will be threads that the writer will later pick up upon and develop further into a beautiful tapestry. His broad brush strokes here have already given us a portrait of Jesus that addresses our doubt and arrests our attention. In verse four, he adds one more, which works as a segue into a topic that he will immediately develop first. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. All right, the idea of superior or better is now made explicit and will be emphasized throughout Hebrews. The point, you cannot improve upon Jesus. This is so crucial for us to think about. Are you ever tempted to look elsewhere than Christ for what is best? Of course you are. If, if only I had this, my life would be so much better, but it's not Christ. Here's my plan, but Jesus is not central to it. We live in a world in which there is great competition for our attention, our emotions, our passions, our money, our love. And it feeds into our desires so that, as the book of James tells us, every person, you and me, we're tempted, we're lured, we're enticed. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death but Jesus leads to life. The Son is the better way. The writer to the Hebrews will demonstrate that by contrasting the good things of Judaism, the way of life they are tempted to return to with Jesus and his way. Later, it will be a comparison with the sacrificial system, the priesthood, their leader, Moses, but first it begins with the angels. Some have said the writer references angels because there were some that were drifting into a false elevation of, of angels, like a cult of angel worship. But the writer is not denigrating angels. In scripture, when a person meets an angel, it's like, there's wonder. John, in the book of Revelation, is so taken aback by his encounter with an angel, he falls at his feet to worship. But the angel tells him, don't do it. Worship God. Hebrews acknowledges that angels are good. They are mediators of the law of God in the Old Testament. That's good. They were ministers of God sent by him. That's good. But good things, like our good things, need to find their place in relationship to that which is supreme. Look at the sun. Verse five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you. In verses 5 to 14, we are given no less than seven Old Testament passages to make the point. Jesus is better. What is interesting is that in the first three references, we have a rep representation from the whole of the Hebrew Bible. The Jews referred to their scriptures in three sections. The Torah, which was the first five books, also referred to as the Pentateuch or the Law. The Nevi'im, which was the prophets. And the Ketuvim, which referred to the writings. So we get the acronym Tanakh. Each is present in the initial three quotations. The author brilliantly showing us that all of Scripture, as Jesus pointed out to the, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, all of Scripture points to him. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Psalm 2, verse 7, from the writings. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. From 2 Samuel 7.14 of the prophets. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, referring to either to Jesus or his incarnation or second coming, he says, let all God's angels worship him. From Deuteronomy 32.43, the law, the Torah, in the Septuagint, the Greek version. The more excellent name is that of the son. It demonstrates a superior relationship with God. A Jew would understand that this is no ordinary son, but a kingly son, as promised in covenant with David and representative of the whole nation of God's people, Israel. The begetting in Psalm 2 referred to a royal coronation. A son has been enthroned. The early New Testament church understood this to happen to Jesus as a result of his death and resurrection. Having conquered death, Jesus then ascended to the Father, enthroned as the Son at his right hand. And so the early church preached. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So extraordinary is this son that God commands the angels to worship him, something reserved only for God. And now the writer will show us that is exactly who Jesus is. Verse 7, while angels are referred to as winds or flame of fire, quoting Psalm 104, in verse 8 we read this, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The writer does not make Jesus up. That is, make, make him who he wants Jesus to be. This is something we may be prone to do, and we need to be really careful about. When we make Jesus less than God, when we make him to be one who approves of what we approve and condemns what we condemn, we don't have the real thing. We have a figment of our imagination, and that God has no power. In the book, Putting Jesus in His Place, the, the Case for the Deity of Christ, the authors say this, Interpretations of Jesus are fraught with bias. He's a powerful figure whom people want on their sides, and they're willing to recreate him in their image to enlist his support. Frankly, it's hard to escape the feeling that our culture has taken Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, and changed it to, who do you want me to be? Hebrews shows us who Jesus is straight from the scriptures in its bandwidth of, of the Old Testament. Quoting Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever. This is applied to Jesus. He is God, now enthroned, who rules for eternity. 
And he does so with the scepter of righteousness, uprightness, that is the right ways of God, revealed in the scriptures to us in both the Old and New Testaments. He loves what is good and upright. He hates what is evil and wicked. He has been anointed king with an oil of gladness. And the author is not finished yet. It's like he wants us to know he could go on and on and on about the supremacy of Jesus. He quotes Psalm 102, a scripture that addresses God in his name in the Old Testament, which the writer now applies to Jesus here in the New. Yahweh in Hebrew, Kyrios in the Greek, translated Lord in our English language. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Like the earth and heavens, we see our pursuits and our problems have a shelf life. God, the creator, Jesus, and a relationship with him is for eternity. He is supreme. And of all that we could value and hope for and cling to, there is none like him. Daryl Bach and his co-authors of Putting Jesus in His Place use a helpful acronym, HANDS, to make it easy to remember how the scriptures articulate the supremacy of Jesus as the divine Son of God. H stands for Jesus shares the honors of God. A, Jesus shares the attributes of God. N, Jesus shares the names of God. D, Jesus shares the deeds of God. And S, Jesus shares the seat of God's eternal throne. Now, all of these are expressed in the first chapter of Hebrews. It is one of the clearest and loudest voices to the divinity of Jesus in the New Testament. Look at the Son. He shares in God's honor. The angels worship him. Look at the Son. He shares in the attributes of God. He is eternal. His nature is exactly as God the Father's. Look at the Son. He shares in the names of God, explicitly called God and the Lord. Look at the Son. He shares in the deeds of God, creating, sustaining on a cosmic level. Look at the Son. He shares in the seat of God's eternal throne, the place of all authority. As it says in verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The writer to the Hebrews has used angels as a comparison. The literary term is a foil, to provide for us a comparison that is rich, giving us a picture of the greatness of our God and, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. For those doing well in their faith, for those struggling, for, for those who have no faith, he would say, look again, look at, look to the Supreme Son. A few weeks ago, I was doing some cleaning up in my house, and, and as I did so, there was my old wedding album with a picture of myself and my bride on the cover so many years ago. Looking at myself, I was like, yuck, <laughs> the mustache, the hair. Maybe I was just a, a foil, because as I looked at my wife, I was literally taken aback. I was stunned. Her smile, her eyes, her radiance that reflected her character. I had forgotten how beautiful she was, inside and out. I had not looked for a long time. In the busyness of our private world, in the demands of 
of our pressures and problems, it is so easy for us to be pulled away, distracted, and forget and not look and not see how great a Savior is Jesus my Lord. In Hebrews 1, we've had a chance to look again. Jesus, Son of God, Creator, Prophet, Priest, King, the Divine One. And, and it's not that we are just to acknowledge these things in our head. They are to arrest our attention. They are to be true in how we live. In times of prosperity, in times of testing and difficulty, in times of uncertainty, when there's pressure, and, or even the prospect of loss or, or even harm, that makes all the difference to see and recall to mind that the one who is on the throne is the one who is your God and your Savior, Jesus. Look to the Supreme Son in each moment, every hour, 168 hours of the week. Put your trust in him. 